I'm Damian Bolwa, Managing Editor of the San Francisco Chronicle. Today on Fifth and Mission, Police in the Spotlight. The Black Lives Matter movement, energized by the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis, is pushing for big changes in Bay Area police departments, and some cities are listening. Reporter Brett Simpson and columnist Otis Taylor are both here to talk about the latest in two hot spots for this, Berkeley and Vallejo. Brett and Otis, how are you guys? Doing well, thanks. Hey, thank you for having me on Fifth Emission. Yeah, thanks for joining us again. And, you know, we we want to start, I think, with, with Berkeley. Brett, you've been covering the latest there. Berkeley, obviously, is a, a city that tries to get ahead of, of some of these changes. They've been talking about how to defund the police. What happened this week? Yeah. So what happened in Berkeley really shows that their conflict isn't about whether to totally rethink police involvement in public safety, but how to do it and how long that's going to take. So like you said, Berkeley is a pretty progressive city with this deep history of protests. So with the national conversation happening, they didn't want to get left behind. Um, And even though they hadn't had an officer involved shooting since 2012, the racial disparities in their enforcement data play out like a lot of other cities. Um, So two weeks ago, Berkeley passed this budget that reduced the police department budget by 12% or $9 million, mostly by committing to keep some vacancies open on the force. And then five council members proposed five different sweeping measures that each took a slightly different approach to rethinking public safety. Um, most prominently, maybe there was Dot to create this whole new department of unarmed civilian traffic enforcers. And there was also a measure to defund the police by 50% immediately. And then there were a few others about transitioning the police out of homelessness and mental health crisis response and analyzing past police call data and police budgets. So there was on Tuesday night, this crazy long nine hour city council meeting And they ended up passing this omnibus bill made by the mayor where he kind of took his favorite parts of all the measures and tweaked them and scaled them back a little bit. And he basically said, we'll get there. We're setting a goal to defund by 50%. We're setting a goal to eventually get police mostly out of traffic enforcement. But how and when these things will happen is kind of anybody's guess at this point. Yeah, it's it's obviously complicated and a bit of an experiment and, a, and, a, and now a test case, I think. But before let's dig into those things. But before we do it, Otis, I want to ask you, you know, what is your feeling? I mean, you've been writing, obviously, for us for years about the need for police reforms. Um, and all of a sudden we're in the midst of this conversation. Um, what are you seeing? How does this kind of fit into the national movement? Are you surprised? I'm surprised in the fact that it took so long. Um, What we're seeing in cities like Berkeley is the political will to do something. Um, But it took another black person dying in a very public fashion at the hands of the police who are charged to protect them. I also think, though, that many of these um, issues that are being put forth aren't enough. I think um, we need to think 
think of this as an experiment, uh, an opportunity to reimagine policing um, in the future. And I like that the discussion is happening, but I feel that it's not going to go far enough. Let me give you an example. Um, Many police departments, including in the Bay Area, um, in the wake of George Floyd's death, uh, banned chokeholds. Well, that's piecemeal. That is not the um, overall idea of policing communities, over-policing communities. And I think we need to be thinking strategically about what we're what we're proposing. Um, but again, places like Berkeley, Oakland um, are doing the right thing by having the discussion. Well, it's, it's interesting how you put it. I mean, we, Otis, haven't we? We've always been talking about police reforms. And the new part of this conversation is the idea of, of totally reimagining this fundamentally. Um, and, and yeah, I don't think we, either of us thought that that would happen. And here we are in the middle of it. I want to take this, this one example, um, and Brett, you mentioned it. You know, the idea of police not doing traffic stops, I think, it kind of just immediately shocked people. And uh, first, Brett, how, how does that work? Um, it doesn't start immediately, right? It's, it's way more complicated than that. Yeah, no, it's, um, it, it starts with a community engagement process where they are going to ask the community, you know, what it, how, how can we do this? What is this going to look like? Um, but the goal is eventually that they're going to, first they have to create this new department of transportation uh, staff it up with um, civilian officers who will then um, be completely in, tro- in control of traffic enforcement. And that's, you know, anything from a broken taillight to, you know, running through a red light to, um, you know, parking in the wrong place. Yeah, it's 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 a fascinating subject. I think some people's immediate reaction was, hey, I can I can speed now. Hey, I can get away with it. Um that that is not the idea. Yeah, the the idea is the end of pretextual stops, right? Where police pull you over for a broken taillight because they really want to search your vehicle for drugs or a weapon, which um, clearly has just become a huge problem and um, plays out in ways that are, you know, just highlight all of the racial inequities um, that have been really, you know, drawn into the national spotlight right now. Otis, I mean, is there a, a through line between between this question of, of whether unarmed people can actually take some of the police role and and issues like stop and frisk and and issues like how pol- uh, police kind of saturate certain neighborhoods? It feels like all part of a piece of the same puzzle. Sure. I, I, look, high level, I think we're talking about um reducing the prevalence of guns in policing, which is is important. Um, for, for so long, police have had the ability to say, oh, well, I feared for my life, therefore I had to use my service weapon. And it's been hard to, um, to one, hold those officers accountable criminally, um, but two, it's also hard for um, the general public to – before George Floyd, I'm saying, be, to imagine that police were doing their job incorrectly. But to your point, Damien, about you know 
this being uncharted territory, I like to point out that um, uh, BART, when it uh, finally, finally implemented its ambassador program on trains to have people present who would be trained in de-escalation techniques and also uh, social issues uh, would be good for the the service and for the, the clientele, of course, uh, ridership has declined in the pandemic. But I think that idea uh, was very smart. And I think we should think about, um, you know, using police, uh, uh, not using police and traffic enforcement in that regard. But of course, there's a lot of opposition. Um, just this morning, MAD, um, uh, Mothers Against Drunk Driving, has uh, come out forcefully opposing uh, Berkeley's plan. And I think we're going to start seeing more of that because the, I, when people hear defund police or taking responsibilities away from police, they're not hearing, um, well, maybe we can find someone who's better qualified to handle issues that don't require force or don't require uh, weapons. Um, but what they're hearing is you know, people are going to run wild with crime, and, and I don't think that will be the case. Well, let's, let's examine that a little bit, though. What if, what if someone doesn't stop for – one of these un- unarmed ambassadors, and, and they are drunk. Oh, that's that's a very uh, interesting question. And Brett, I'd love to hear what you think about that. For me, I think um, uh, a couple weeks ago, I was driving back from Vallejo, and one of the bridges wasn't taking tolls. And so I just drove through, and they took a picture of my license plate, and the the bill arrived in my mail. Um, I remember several years ago, I was driving Spain and I was speeding. Yes. And I got a picture in the mail. I, I think there are other ways to deal with that, but you're right. Yes. There are going to be some areas where it doesn't neatly fit. And I think we need to take it upon ourselves to acknowledge that. Yes, we will have to deal with that, but dealing with something else is better than keeping the status quo that is disproportionately affecting people of color. Yeah, Otis, I I love that um, some council members have met, quite a few have mentioned, you know, moving toward automation enforcement as much as possible. So, you know, it's not even like an armed or an unarmed uh, civilian officer. It's it's automated. Um, So figuring out where that fits in. But uh, to Damien's point, you know, if if someone is speeding off and not complying, I think that the next step is really strengthening communication networks between the police uh, so that they can deal with crimes, but then also shifting those first responders to be the, you know, unarmed crisis responders. And it's not just in traffic enforcement. It's also in, you know, homelessness response and mental mental health issues. Um you know, social services that the police might be the second call, but that there, you know, there is something um, meaningful in making sure that they're not the first responders. Got it. Okay. I need to take a break. When we come back on fifth and mission, I want to just finish up on Berkeley, a couple more questions about how this is all going to work. And then we'll shift over to Vallejo. We'll be right back. All right. Welcome back to Fifth and Mission. I'm Damian Bulwa. I'm here with reporter Brett Simpson and columnist Otis Taylor. We're talking about police reform, the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, Before we move on to Vallejo, I want to ask you a couple more questions about Berkeley. Brett, you said that, 
you know, one of the, the issues of, of moving police out of some of the interactions with the public is, is disparate racial numbers. But who, who is to say that the, who is to say that the civilians won't also maybe fall into some of these stereotypes and, and pull over people at these uh, racially disparate rates? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And um, that's something that council members and members of the public, you know, haven't completely figured out yet. And that's why I think they're moving toward this community engagement process, because, yeah, you take a civilian officer, um, you give them basically the the same job. uh, You know, they're not armed, huge progress, but everyone has implicit bias. So what what do we have in place? What measures do we have in place to make sure that, you know, one, these civilians represent the community demographically and two, they, you know, maybe have gone through the right training or um, maybe have even created a completely new way to operate. And that's why I think that there's no real timeline on this. It's going to take a lot of conversations and planning because, you know, when you have an unprecedented measure, that means there's no precedent. So they've got to figure that out. Yeah. And, and what about the union contracts? I mean, you can't just dial back the budget of an, of an organization that has a collective bargaining agreement overnight. Yeah. And that, that's why um, they set the goal for 50 percent defunding, even though um, there was a measure to defund by 50 percent, you know, on Tuesday. But they're like, we already set our budget. You know, they they two weeks ago, they um, scaled back the police budget by 12 percent. And they did that um, in bargaining. And they decided not to, you know, they decided to discontinue these vacancies that were open and that 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 took a process that took a back and forth um and so uh yeah i'd be i'd be interested to see because the majority of police budgets um are in personnel so that will mean reducing the force and figuring out how to do that it's it's going to take some conversations yeah otis if we could switch over to to vallejo otis you have spent a lot of time in that city over the past year um, it is has a, an incredible amount of, of complaints about police use of force, um, a lot of, of uh, fatal shootings by the police officers. And once again, we're talking about a controversial shooting. What's going on right now? So what's going on right now is that <clears throat> in the midst of protests uh, in the wake of George Floyd's death, there was some, let's say, a weekend uh, of looting and rioting, but <clears throat> not to excuse the looting and rioting, um, there were uh, people going to cities and and trying to break into um, various stores. On the early morning of June 2nd, there was a call that a Walgreens on uh, Redwood Drive, I believe, in Vallejo was being uh, looted. The Vallejo police um, converged on the scene. Three officers were in a unmarked um, truck, and they encountered uh, Sean Monterosa. Sean Monterosa was shot, fatally shot, by an officer from the back seat of that truck who fired a rifle through the windshield. This has launched so many questions. Is that protocol for an officer to fire from the back seat when there's two other officers in the front seat? Um, 
But what we've learned is that the police chief's narrative has changed um, in, in the resulting weeks here. And just recently, I learned that um, the windshield in that shooting was destroyed. It was not preserved as evidence by the police department. And why is that? So what I and that's under investigation that, now, right? Exactly. The, you know, they are the city is calling the FBI, asked the FBI to look in it. They're asked the Solano County District Attorney to look into it. But yes, the shooting is bad. But Damien, what's really, really remarkable is. Everything surrounding this, the Solano County DA has recused herself from investigating the shooting and Willie McCoy shooting in February 2019. Um, the OIR group, which released a scathing report last month about Vallejo's police practices, um, is also investigating the shooting. I'm just really baffled at why the police department is having is bringing in all this outside investigatory um, talent and not doing anything itself. It just speaks to um, the problems, the, the large problems, the breadth of the problems, and it, it goes beyond um, just report writing and actually patrolling. This. It's, it's actually preserving evidence. It's actually being transparent in, in this time uh, when policing is under so much scrutiny. And I mean, spending time in Vallejo, what are you hearing from the community there? You know, they what are, how are they looking at the police department? Are they are they confident that things can can change and that anything can be done? No, not at all, Damien. And that's that's one of the things I've been reporting on for uh, three years now in Vallejo is that the public and I'm not just saying black and brown people who say they've been brutalized by police. I'm talking about uh, white residents. I'm talking about Asian residents who showed up to every city council meeting demanding action from uh, Vallejo public officials. And until George Floyd was was killed, no one, no one had any political will to do anything. And, you know, you brought up the unions with Brett. I mean, that speaks to how powerful and how politically connected the Vallejo Police Officers Association is. But to your to answer your question, I have spent so much time in apartments and houses and outside of city council. Even uh, last week when I was there to um, – when a video of uh, Sean Monterosa's uh, killing was uh, released, and I have residents coming up to me and asking me what's going on, what should I do to make the police department change? Because uh, this growing chorus, it just keeps getting louder and louder, and what we're seeing is more dysfunction instead of correcting the issue uh, with the police department. Yeah, the other thing that I that it really seem to bring up in the Sean Monterosso case is that now we're seeing a, a video every time something happens. Um, how has that really changed things? Well, it's changed in that we're actually seeing what the police officers are, are viewing. But it's also alerting us to the fact that the video is often limiting, whether it's because the officer delays in turning on their body camera or because in the case of Sean Monterosa's um, death, we don't see anything. 
And this video was delayed for more than a month by the police department, and it shows nothing. You only see uh, a rifle being fired through a windshield. You do not see uh, impact, and you only see after the fact of, of, of officers trying to administer aid. We don't see Sean Monterosso. We don't see what he was doing at the time. Nope. We just have the police narrative, and, and that's to my point about um, – you know, taking the police at their word is that the chief said something completely different on June June third and fourth than he said on in in July, and his narrative now lines up with the police union's narrative of that Monterosa got into a stance that seemed to suggest he was shooting, which I find unbelievable. That a, a young man would get into a stance that looked like shooting when he had no weapon on him except for a hammer. Got it. All right. Otis, thank you so much for joining us again. Brett, thanks for coming in for the first time. Appreciate you guys. Yeah, thanks for having us, Damien. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks to my guests today, columnist Otis Taylor and reporter Brett Simpson. To King Kaufman for producing this episode. And thank you for listening.